All right, well, everyone, well, welcome to Project ECHO. This is the University of Melbourne Hub Adolescent Mental Health Network Series 3, Session 3, and I'd like to acknowledge the support of the Victorian Government in the production of this series. It's Tuesday the 26th of July 2022, and this session is titled Eating Disorders Beyond the Basics. So welcome back to ECHO. As we move into Term 3 at the schools, we'll focus on the fundamentals of health through our ECHO series, so um, eating well and sleeping well. So two of those basic needs that we as human animals must achieve if we're going to feel safe, secure, and steady in our foundations before we build upon these lovely ideals of psychological growth, flourishing, and self-actualization. So as clinicians working with young people, we see um, issues with eating and sleeping so commonly, um, and we know in our gut how crucial it is to get these things right. So in these sessions for ECHO in Term 3, we'll be focusing on how to recognize issues and intervene early and effectively. Tonight's session will focus on eating disorders and move from the basics of screening and recognition into early intervention and multidisciplinary team-based care. And we'll be considering how we work with schools to create those early access pathways into healthcare. And in our next session uh, in about a month's time, we'll focus on sleep. But before we move into these conversations, I'd like to begin by making an acknowledgement to country. I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands from which we're all zooming in from today. I'm, I'm tonight, I'm zooming in from the lands of the Wadawurrung people, and I pay my respects to elders past and present and um, extend that respect, of course, to anyone else connecting in who identifies as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Now, you know what to do, I think. Um, we like to keep videos on during the discussion. Um, we will share the um, video recording. So if you did want to maintain privacy during that video recording, we'll share it for colleagues, just colleagues um, to review after these sessions. Um, remain on mute, raise your hand or bring yourself off chat when we go into our interactive discussion. These are really interactive. So please um, feel very comfortable participating. Now, do you have a case that you'd like to unpack? We've got some um, ideas on this form. So you can grab that form. Uh, I think it'll be in the slide deck and um, Anne-Marie will also put it in the chat um, because we'd love to hear from you because the sessions that we've got coming up are sleep issues, family violence or interpersonal violence and issues. And if you've got a case that's relevant to that, um, you know, any case will do. You can always bring any case to ECHO, um, but these will be the um, themes and um, the experts that we'll be bringing to the sessions. So we'd love to hear from you if, if you've got a case that you're puzzling right now. And thanks to Kiara tonight for bringing a case Um uh, of eating disorders um so um we're basically going to go into a moment we're going to do a bit of a who's who and introduce um one ourselves to one another and um also to our new guest um who's going to provide the didactic presentation today dr jenny conway um i might actually um just stop sharing so we can actually go into that um yeah because i think we kind of all know the drill now so it's probably nice just to actually pull screen and see who's here Oh, wow. So there's a lo the lovely bunch of us this evening. Um, what I might do is I might start with, um, I might start with our panellists first. So um, Jenny, could you um, bring yourself off mute and just introduce yourself to the crew, Na kind of name role region um, and, you know, what you're doing here tonight? Okay. Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming along. Uh, as Bianca said, my name is Jenny Conway. I'm a general practitioner who lives and works in the Yarra Valley, but uh, also has a specialty clinic uh, concerning management of eating disorders that I participate in down in the city in North Fitzroy. Uh, I've been working with uh, people across all age spectrums of eating disorders for about a decade now, but uh, because of my interest in adolescent health and my participation in doctors and secondary schools, uh, um, I obviously have a very firm interest in dealing with young people with developing disordered eating and eating disorders as well. Great. So uh, Bianca's asked me to come along and uh, participate tonight, and I'm really happy to be here. 
Okay, well, let's get cracking. Uh, so eating disorders, it's uh, probably this group of illnesses is a lot more common than perhaps some of you realise. Uh, prior to the pandemic, it was estimated that there was about a million Australians living with eating disorders, so about 4% of the population, and that has actually uh, increased dramatically during the pandemic. Um, eating disorders are a group of serious mental health illnesses that actually uh, amongst them, anorexia nervosa has the highest death rate of any mental health problem uh, from a combination of the psychological distress that the patients experience, but also from the phys physical and physiological uh, serious uh, complications that they can develop from their illness as well. So it's actually really a very important group of illnesses for us to have our antenna wiggling and uh, working in, in the DIS program, we actually are exposed to some of the most vulnerable patients who are at highest risk of developing eating disorders. So eating disorders, you don't just wake up one morning with an eating disorder. They're on a continuum along a spectrum. People, you know, it's quoted that the greatest risk of developing an eating disorder is going on a diet. When you think about how many uh, teenagers, both boys and girls, will at some stage go on fad diets. And the dieting can then progress to disordered eating, which is where they have a disconnect with the usual hunger cues and responses and social enjoyment of eating. And then it can progress further on to an actual diagnosable eating disorder. And it's estimated, as I said, if 4% of the population have a diagnosable eating disorder, according to DSM-5, when you in include the disordered eating numbers, it's estimated that there's over 16% of the population so that they're big numbers and, you know, whether it's in DIS or whether it's in our own general practice setting, we're going to be coming across these people. So it's really important that you understand, you know, the questions to ask, the right language to use and also what to look out for. So when you break down the different sorts of eating disorders uh, and, you know, if you end up doing the NEDC module, we go into a lot of detail about that. But basically the most common is binge eating disorder. It's estimated about 47% of uh people with eating disorders suffer with that. Then you've got bulimia nervosa, anorexia nervosa, and then there's another grab bag with the new definitions that came out with DSM-5, which are called other, and they're, they're very specific. So I won't, I won't bore you with all of that. You can look it up further if you wish. So in the psychological or psychosocial context of adolescence, as I said, you know, this group of patients are actually some of the most vulnerable people to succumb to developing eating disorders. And when you think about teenagers, you know, puberty, there's body changes, there's a sudden awareness of, of their bodies, their body image, how they compare to their peers. We've got the monster that is social media. All these kids have often quite unrealistic expectations about what the perfect body is. And... Um, you also have this sort of distorted ideal of perfection. And so part of what we can do, and which I know a lot of secondary schools are trying to do, is to teach media literacy so kids understand about photoshopping and airbrushing and a lot of the images they're seeing on Instagram of all these perfect people living their best lives often are quite faked with filters and, you know, all manner of photoshopping. So um, this is one of the issues with teenagers that makes them a lot more vulnerable now, moving on to you've got this very vulnerable group of people, what impact has the pandemic had? Well, for all of us, lockdowns stopped us seeing our friends, stopped us seeing our families, took us away from our hobbies, increased loneliness, increased anxiety. And if you wallpaper that over 
the angst that many teenagers already have, you can see how the distress of young people during the pandemic has increased the presentations of uh, the sorts of symptoms and signs and thoughts that eating disorders are associated with. So it was interesting. I was hunting up some papers. There's been a lot of research done about the impact of a pandemic on, on the presentation with eating disorders. And interestingly, um, the Children's Hospital have a specialist eating disorder unit as part of their adolescent health service. And uh, they say that they had an increase of 63% of young people seeking treatment. There was 40% new eating disorder patients that the, the pandemic had triggered their eating disorder. And there was also a 13% relapse. So these are young people who'd been through their program, made a recovery, and the pandemic and the stress and the anxiety around all of that triggered a relapse. So uh, as we all know, there's been a, a tsunami of mental health um, concerns and presentations. Uh, all the services are absolutely chock-a-block. And even with these, you know, this critical group of illnesses where young people can be seriously ill, uh, it's also the demand has been uh, ex ex grown exponentially. And obviously that, that can cause some problems when it comes for us at the front line trying to access um, support for these young people. So what's the best approach in primary care? Well, I guess, as I said at the outset, just have it on your radar. Um, Often the kids won't, you know, they won't come in saying, oh, I've got an eating disorder. They'll come in with lots of other mental health things that might be increasing anxiety, might be they've got tummy problems, you know, all those sorts of things that can masquerade or, or be a way for them to suss you out, I suppose, whether you're going to be asking them the right questions. Um, trying to establish rapport. I know in our disc clinic, often the kids have come in and seen the, the nurse quite a few times um, and be chatting about all sorts of things and then they'll come in and see me. So we need to assess their current physical and psychological state. So it's doing risk assessment, establish that they're safe. And this is all basically the stuff that we do every day with the heads, um, exclude any underlying physical illness. So you might have someone who presents, they're dizzy. You know, how many of us have seen the um, adolescent girl who comes in feeling dizzy um, we see them every week at disc <laughs> uh, you know they might be anemic they might be celiac they might have gastritis so there's a whole myriad of things they might have but we need to exclude that as well um, and then I guess we need to work out how how safe they are is it something that we can manage is it something that we need to make referrals for is it something that you know immediately needs to be referred into the kims or cams or is it something that actually needs to be um, addressed in the emergency department and so we'll, we'll go into this in a little more more detail but the take home from all of this for those of you who haven't actually done any eating disorder uh pd cpd is that we alone can't manage eating disorders because they are so complex. So making sure you have a good care team around you, and we'll go into this in a little bit in one of, one of the uh, later slides, is really important. So knowing your support services and having good connections with various allied health people is really key in giving the best support to these patients. And then also ongoing monitoring is very important too, which brings us back to the rapport. You need to have the rapport to get these kids to come back and see you. So it's not only the medical monitoring, 
but also their psychological state. Because if you've got someone who's losing weight as they start to gain weight, which we think is fantastic, to them can be incredibly stressful. And often in that situation, then the eating disorder thoughts can really become very, very loud and cause a great degree of distress. Next slide, Bianca. All right, so getting to the early recognition, we're looking at the heads, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, and we can include E for eating in that as well. There's also the scoff. So I'm not sure how many of you are aware of that, but it's a validated tool that um, has been found to actually be quite accurate in picking up whether someone's likely to have an eating disorder. So there are the, the uh, questions there. And um, obviously, if you're making yourself sick or if you're worrying if you've lost control, if you answer yes to a couple of them, then obviously it means there might be something going on. And if you answer yes to everything, well, then, you know, you can be pretty well guaranteed that there's something going on. There's also the EDEQ. Um, it'd be interesting. I'd like to know in the chat how many of you are, are doing eating disorder plans. If you are, you would be well aware of the EDEQ. It's the gold standard uh, assessment that we need to do for eating disorder plans. And uh, as part of that, if the patient has a global score of greater than three, then they're eligible to have an eating disorder plan. Even if their global score is less than two, we can still do a mental health plan um, because there is a degree of distress there that they would be seeing the uh, psychologist under a normal mental health plan uh, rather than having the you know, state-of-the-art, best-on-ground eating disorder plan, which gives a lot more support. So I've sort of spoken to the first thing, EDEQ is part of the assessment. And then we need to uh, work out uh, what their diagnosis is according to DSM. Uh, and again, you know, that the EDEQ actually has a lot of information about that, but I'll direct you to the NEDC website and also Eating Disorders Victoria is another fantastic resource, which I'd encourage you all to um, have a look on their website. Uh, lots of info for health professionals, but lots and lots of information for patients and carers and loved ones uh, who might be living with an eating disorder. Establishing the severity, as I mentioned, you know, is it something that needs to be taken to hospital straight away or is it something we can manage ourselves um, with our care team? The risk assessment, are they suicidal? Uh, often the anorexics can be suicidal. And ruling out the organic causes, the physical examination, investigations and any pertinent family history because we know that one of the big things with eating disorders is that uh, if you have an immediate family member who has an eating disorder, that definitely puts you at greater risk. Okay. Next slide, Bianca. All right. So the circle of understanding, we Sorry, have... Jenny, I, I, I wonder if this one was incomplete. Did we talk about this slide? I think, yeah, we you've sent it to me and I think we left it at that, so maybe skip on to the next one. Yeah, thanks. Sorry. That's um, right. Thoughts, feelings, maybe... Yeah, sorry. All right, we might skip. No, that's all right. Yeah, skip that one. <laughs> Go on to the next one. Okay, so we all want to know what the red flags are. So one of the big take-homes with this is checking for the uh, blood pressure and pulse lying and standing. And as evidenced in the uh, red oval there, if they have a bradycard of less than 50 or a postural tachy greater than 30, then that is grounds to send them to the emergency department. 
And why is that? Well, particularly with the anorexics, uh, they can be so starved and have their electrolytes so deranged that they can have, um, you know, a cardiac event. And if when they're, the kids are awake, they've got a BP of less than 50, you know, it can drop down to 30 or below when they're asleep. And often it does, you know, when these young people are admitted for telemetry, um, it can be quite terrifying how low their heart rates can drop. So um, that would be the big thing to look out for. So if you look up the Royal Children's Hospital and Safer Care Vic guidelines, it spells out uh, all sorts of other things there, We're talking about whether they're hypothermic, the electrolyte disturbance, if they've got an arrhythmia or an ECG, if they're suicidal. And with, with uh, children and adolescents, um, it's the, the, if their weight is less than 75% of their expected body weight or if they've lost a significant amount of weight in the previous three to six months. The other big thing which can happen is uh, these compensatory behaviours, which we often see with uh, the anorexics and bulimics, where uh, you know they will, you know, you'll have a young person who's hardly eating anything at all, in fact, sometimes eat nothing, and they will exercise like they're possessed. And if you try and stop them exercising, they become so incredibly anxious and out of control that it is just terrifying to see and it's terrifying for the parents often. The other thing is they can just out and out refuse to eat and obviously that's not going to go well if you're trying to manage them in the community. So they're another two uh, reasons why you'd be needing to considering sending them to hospital. So the big thing with young people is that they usually can't drive unless they're year 12 and have happened to got their licence. But if they've got an eating disorder, particularly anorexia, you don't want them driving anyway because their glucose levels will be horrendously low. So they need to be able to travel to access the support. So mapping out your local services or whether there's telehealth available for specialist services is really important. So the resources for us is you've got the point of care through the DIS portal, the PHN and health pathways will hopefully list your local services. And I know that um, EMPHN, which extends all the way out to where I am in the Yarra Valley, have got a pretty good eating disorder health pathway. EDV, as I mentioned, NEDC, which Bianca's already uh, spoken to. There's also the, the uh, College of Psychiatry uh, came out with a fantastic document, um, which basically lists in great detail uh, all the different criteria for your admission, both psychological and, and physical both for adults and uh, young people. And then there's an NED quick reference guide which we put together to help help you navigate who's going to be um, eligible for the eating disorder plan and what the item numbers are and what the process is regarding reviews and, and psychiatrist involvement and so forth. Okay. So who can be on the care team? Well, there's a cast of thousands, really. Um, some of them you might be lucky enough that you can access through your own home practice and link the, the DIS students into that. So there's obviously ourselves, the GPs, the nurses, uh, a dietitian often is a key component. And if, if you deem that the, the student is eligible for an eating disorder plan, well, then uh, they can get up to 20 sessions with a dietitian without need for review. 
psychologist, someone who's experienced with managing uh, patients with eating disorders is also very important. Not all psychologists uh, have done the extra training and have the expertise and finesse in dealing with eating disorders. So it is important to try and scope out who in your network may have done that extra training. You've also got the parents, the family and carers often need to be an integral part. And certainly with young people under 18, the uh, modality if um, when they go to, say, a, a Kim's or CAM service is family-based therapy where the family is an integral part of the therapeutic team. You've got primary care and specialist physicians. You may need, if they're more severe into the spectrum, to have paediatricians, adolescent physicians, adolescent psychiatrists, the family therapist, the social worker, the counsellor. So basically um, you can end up with quite a team which means we can also then uh, have case conferences, which I do on a regular basis with the patients that I manage. And that just means everyone's on the same page, which is really helpful because there can be uh, sort of uh, fun and games and smoke and mirrors and splitting going on with some of these young people. So making sure everyone is aware of what's going on and where the patient is at can be a very useful thing. Okay. So further training, I'll, I'll spruik this, this, uh, this program on NEDC. Um, it's uh, a CAT1 40 magic points and um, it's four hours of uh, really high quality training which will make you feel very confident in dealing with patients with eating disorders. And um, it, it is all free which is great because NEDC is funded by the feds and so they got a grant to put this together because I think um, Greg Hunt seemed to have quite a soft spot with for eating disorders and has threw an awful lot of money um, in his during his tenure as health minister. So this is a really good tangible outcome, which isn't something we necessarily get from federal government initiatives. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd really encourage you to have a look. That's great. Thanks, Jenny. Oh, the good old soft spot in political will. Um, I'm glad we can benefit from it. And, and geez, we need it, right? Because this is complex care. It doesn't quite fit the regular fee-for-service model. Can I ask a question? So we're moving into questions now. So please place questions for Jenny in the chat or, or bring it, feel free to bring yourself off mute. We'll just have time for kind of one or two. Um, Jenny, I, I learned the other day, if I create a CDMTCA arrangement for a young person, then the psychologist mm -hmm. can actually receive funding for case conferencing, something Correct. that you kind of can't get through a mental health care plan. That's if right. you do it, what about for eating disorders plans? Can, they, can the allied health teams get funded to participate in case conferences? My understanding is that they can because yeah. they're an integral part of it and because you've got, you know, it's not just you and the psychologist because you've actually got a, often a dietitian, you might have a psychiatrist or a physician. So, so long as you've got the, the you know, more than just you and one other health practitioner, that's the criteria for a case conference. Maybe yeah, you which you and two others. Yeah, that's it. I mean, often I'll like say it might be, you know, in, in DIS, what Kate and I are finding, if it, if Kate and I are both seeing them, then there's my one other practitioner because Kate's seeing them clinically. And then if you've got a psychologist mm -hmm. and or a dietitian and you've got the student wellbeing officer, in my yep. case, that student wellbeing officer's uh, a background of their nursing, but they're also social work. But right. actually, you can use educational specialists. So if it's appropriate, your student wellbeing officer can be uh, participate in case Part conferences mm. as well. Yeah, mm. but it's always been for me that catch with mental health care plans that psychologists kind of weren't remunerated, so it was kind of hard to get them there. But on TCM, TCA CDMs, they are now remunerated. 
And hopefully under the eating disorder care plan they are too. But we can well, we've, that been, we've been yeah, we've been billing them and they've never been knocked back. So great. Oh, okay, there you go. Brilliant. Mm. Okay, great. Anyone else got a question for Jenny? We did have some questions a bit about um, accessing those growth charts. So uh, Anne Marie's tracked a growth chart down, but I, I I've been using them on best practice. I don't know if medical directors got them, but you can if they're under eighteen. When you view previous values, you can have it plotted out in a growth chart for you. Mm. And also through the SEED website, the Centre for Excellence in Eating Disorders, which is based um, here in Melbourne, uh, they also have some adolescent-specific growth charts. At the SEED website. Okay, great. Yep. And then um, we're just asking about whether it's just like less than 75% of P50, Simone. I don't think you're at all overthinking. This is tricky stuff, Simone. Um mm. Yeah, did you want to put your question to Jenny there just to get that one square? Oh, yeah. So I had a tall adolescent. So she's um, she's 15, but she's quite tall. So we mm. measure about 175. And obviously her height, her weight, expected weight is going to be higher. And I really tried finding a growth chart where I could find out that 70, 75% of that. Of the, and I, I honestly tried everywhere. I could not find it. So maybe there's a better resource than I what I can find. Yeah, so the the, um, the growth charts <laughs> that I was talking about on the CWD website, which is mm-hmm. another eating disorder website, which is more actually geared up. They run trainings for psychologists and social workers, not so much for medical doctors, but they have a treasure trove of resources as well. And they have these CDC growth charts, which are appropriate for Australian Caucasian young people now obviously if you're looking at someone with a different racial background then the caucasian growth charts won't necessarily be very accurate so you know that's another um for some of you that are working in schools where there's a large multicultural mix you need to take that in consideration and certainly in my experience i found it's often the trajectory of the weight loss that is the more concerning thing so that's where sometimes you know if if they have um not attended the disc clinic before and you don't have a benchmark then you know you have to sometimes do a bit of detective work and perhaps ask which clinic the family goes to and then make a phone call and say look you know so you've got a comparator to see if they had been weighed and if they haven't then often what what uh we negotiate with the student is to say oh well how about you pop in every couple of weeks and just jump on the scales with in my case, Mandy's my nurse. You know, come and see Mandy. She can jump in there, pop on the scales, just so we can make sure that things are going along okay. And more often than not, they're happy enough to do that. And when you're weighing them, um, if, for those of you that perhaps haven't had much dealing with people with eating disorders, they they often will be willing to go on the scale, but they don't want to know what they weigh. So you do a blind weigh. So either, you know, get them to hop on backwards or turn, you know, put the scales up against the wall before they can see because, you know, if, if they are in the group of an eating disorder, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, that can be the numbers are all powerful and it can really tip them over the edge if they if they see that they've gained this, what to them, you know, 100 grams can be a substantial amount of weight for the anorexic people. So, um, yeah, but have a look at those CDC growth charts. They're, they're a good one to have as a template as well. 